This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, welcome. There's not an empty seat in the room. How about that? This is great. This is great. I just want to say, I was just watching y'all come in. And um, this is, uh, it's, it's humbling, okay? So uh, this is a little off script, but, you know, when, when you have this dream, you plan a church and you kind of go all in for that vision, uh, you don't really know what's going to happen and to sit in a room where I can look around this room and see so many people that I love and uh, you have made my life, my family's life so much more rich than it ever we could have ever even dreamed it would be. And um, really, this is uh, it, you're a blessing, you're a gift, and I'm super humbled uh, for this moment to have this opportunity to share with you. Uh, I believe that what I have to share with you today is really important. And, um, and so because there was so much more content left for this series, we just decided that we'd all do it right here in this. So we're, I'm going to preach to about 12, okay? I don't care what your lunch plans were. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. It's not going to be that long. <laughs> Let me let you know a few things that are going to be happening over the next few weeks. Uh, next week is what we call Selah Sunday. Um, Selah is a word that appears in the Psalms, and what it means is, hey, let's pause and reflect on what you just read and prepare for what you're about to read. And we like to take the last Sunday of the year as a Selah moment, okay? And it gives us a chance to pause, reflect over what God's done in the past, and prepare our hearts for what God is going to do in the future. There will be an online, on-demand message available for you. We want to encourage you, if you're in a small group, you got some friends who come to church with you, get together with them and watch the video together, okay? And take the pause, all right? How many of y'all know we're way too busy? We need everyone's well. We need to reflect over what God's done and allow your hearts to be prepared for what he's going to do in the next season. The very next week, okay, we have First Wednesday. And, and many of y'all know, like our First Wednesdays are a lot more interactive, a lot of prayer, a lot of, really, God's done a lot this year when I think about First Wednesday. People have been healed at First Wednesday. People have been delivered at First Wednesday. Uh, we, we're going we're gonna to lay hands on you and pray for you if you need that. And we, we want you to be there. We want you to, and a lot of times I don't preach those, but I'm going to be preaching that one, okay? So just go ahead, mark it on your calendar, make sure you're ready for that first Wednesday. And then the next Sunday, we kick off our New Year's series. And for us, New Year's series is kind of the place where we set the theme for the new year. And this year, we're calling that series Encounter, okay? And I, I need to say this, far too many Christians, their relationship with God is very cerebral. It's very academic, but God is shown to us in Scripture as a living God, a God that we can not only know intellectually, but a God that we can experience. And so for a few weeks, and this has been really now for a season, it has been my prayer for you that when we come to church, you will have an encounter with God. And over the last year, literally, I've heard of people who have came to church and just 
begin weeping as they walk in. I want you to have that encounter. But I also want you to know what it's like to live in devoted relationship too. So for a few weeks, I'm going to talk about what does it mean to experience God and live fully devoted to Him. Okay? It's going to be so good. And off of that, if you know, in the fall we do Seek Week, this year we're going to do Encounter Week at the beginning of the year. You know, we've done 21 days of prayer, and we're going to do 21 days of prayer this year too, and we've invited you to fast for 21 or 28 days. And I know it's 28 days. And some of you are like, I'm going to give up KFC for 28 days. I'm not going to watch Yellowstone for the next 28 days. You already watched all the episodes. You aren't even going to watch it. This year, it's one week, okay? It's one week. And I'm going to invite you to really fast, okay? I mean, I'm, I'm being serious about this. I want you to pray about it. Maybe fasting lunch. Some of us have jobs where we get an hour for lunch. And you spend 45 minutes, Monday through Friday, going to try to find something to eat. Instead, would you fast lunch? And take that 45 minutes and get alone with your Bible and seek God. Some of us are going to fast from sun up to sundown. There just comes a time when you have to say no to things you would normally say yes to so that you, out of that no, can say yes to God. And I'm going to encourage you for, for one week as we really go after the Lord in a very intense way to fast. It's one week. You can do it, okay? We'll all be hungry at the same time, okay? <laughs> and you know something about being hungry, right? Because it reminds us of what it's like to long. So many of us, we don't long for anything. And we need to long for the Lord. I promise you there's something in it. It will start, Encounter Week starts at first Wednesday, okay? So that first Wednesday is kicking it off, and it's going to finish the next Wednesday with a combined service with our student ministry. If you've never been to one of those services, you need to be there. I mean, you're going to have your faith challenged by some teenagers. All right, really? So make plans. Go ahead and be with us for that. Now, Today's message is going to come out of a series of messages that we've been sharing. The series has been called The Woman, the Dragon, and the Baby. It comes out of the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, the lone prophetic book in the New Testament. The Old Testament has many prophetic books, beginning with the major prophets into the minor prophets. And if you're a part of our church, you're familiar with that because we've preached through the minor prophets over the last several years. But this is the lone, this is the only prophetic book written by the Apostle John, the good friend of Jesus, who's been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Okay? And in his exile, he begins to have these spiritual encounters with God where God gives him prophetic visions. And John's revelation gives us window-like prophetic glimpses into things that have happened and things that will happen in the future. I like to think of it like you're on a plane and you're reading a book and you look out of the window and you see a mountain and then you go back to reading and then you look out and you see a river and then you go back to reading and you look out and you see a city 
John gets these glimpses into things that have happened and things that will happen. And the nature of what he sees is prophetic. Now, the Old Testament has historical books, just like the New Testament does. The Gospels give us a historical perspective on the life of Jesus. But what John is seeing in Revelation is prophetic. It's, it's not historical. And by nature, it's spiritual. And so in the passage that we've been in, John is actually, for him, seeing something that has already happened. He's seeing Christmas. And so I want to invite you all across the room to stand as we read through the beginning of Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Let's pray as we get started. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that as we pause, we're all busy. There's so much to do. Presents to wrap, presents to give. Family dinners to host. But in this moment, you have us here. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us, to amplify your word, and to provoke us to a next step of faith. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen, amen. You may be seated as you're taking a seat. Touch your neighbor and say, I'm an overcomer. Now look back at him and say, not so fast, buddy. (laughs) Oh, I've really loved this series. The woman, the dragon, and the baby, those three main characters that we see in Revelation chapter 12. The woman clothed in sun with the moon under her feet, representing the race of men and 12 stars in the crown that she's wearing, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, representing not only the race of men, but also representing the family of God, the 12 tribes of Israel. She's pregnant. Now we would say this is Mary, mother of Jesus. Some scholars would maybe also say that this is Israel pregnant with the promise of the coming Messiah. And then John sees another sign, an enormous red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on its head. This is the very same image that Daniel sees. It appears several times in this book to John. Seven heads, Ancient cultures that talked about multiple-headed beings, it just simply represented that they were hard to kill. The more heads, the more difficult. For John, seven is complete, and so we can infer that John is saying, you can't kill this. 
the ten horns representing its strength, and then the crowns of stolen authority. And this dragon appears with one purpose, to kill the child. As the woman is about to give birth. And so we see the baby, the male child that is born. John quotes from Psalm 2, the Messianic Psalm, that he would be the one who would rule with an iron scepter. This isn't just a baby. This is a baby from God that in one verse ascends or is incarnated and then ascends to God. I'm just struck by this with the simple reality that there probably is more to Christmas than we've ever ascribed to it. And so I thought it would be helpful today to take you back to a, a really familiar passage of Scripture and show you that while we've read it over and over and over again, perhaps what we've read has become so trite that we are overly familiar with it and miss what's really happening. Let's go to Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Just to give context, in the first century, shepherds were working class dudes. These were not even first shift shepherds. These were night shift shepherds, okay? So these are just your ultimate working guys, showing up in the night, watching over their flocks. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, we read that, and somehow we glance over the fact that there's an angel, a spiritual being, that is not natural. And angels are remarkably pivotal to the Christmas story. All the way back to Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah. An old couple longing to have kids but yet to conceive. And the angel says, you will have a baby. How interesting is it that the Gospel of Luke begins with an elderly couple unable to conceive and the story of redemption begins with an elderly couple, Abraham and Sarah, unable to conceive. The angel announces, you'll have a baby. The angel comes to Mary. The angel comes to Joseph in a dream. And the truth is, these are all key players in the Christmas story, but now it's a shepherd. It's not a king, it's not nobility, it's not a priest or a rabbi, it's a shepherd. And look at what the angel says. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. It struck me that in the Gospel of Luke, we first see Jesus wrapped in cloth as a baby. And then later we see his body wrapped in cloth after they take him down from the cross. 
What does the angel say? Don't be afraid. I have good news. And in the original text, the same word that's used here for good news is the word that we now call gospel. The good news. The gospel of Jesus. The good news of Jesus. So when you read the gospel of Luke, it is the good news of Jesus according to Luke. Or it is the good news of Jesus according to John. It is good news. And the angel announces to them, I have a gospel. And this will bring great joy. The Messiah has been born. Now notice what happens next. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Notice in this verse both heaven and earth. And it's as if This one angel appears and then all of a sudden heaven is pouring out onto earth as the angels worship and adore and praise. It bears asking this simple question. Why was the praise of angels spilling out of heaven onto earth? Why? So many times when we talk about Christmas, what we talk about is what. What happened? What did Mary do? What did Joseph do? What did the wise men do? What did the shepherds do? But why? Why is this happening? And sure, the big guiding why is that the Messiah has been born. Messiah is a gigantic promise for the people of God. It goes all the way back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve transgressed the one law that God had created for them. Don't eat this fruit. And then all of a sudden when they do, sin enters the world and death follows with it. And God looks to the serpent and says there is one who is coming in Genesis 3.15 who will crush you. And all throughout the story of redemption, this messianic promise begins to develop as God promises a deliverer to come. But in this moment, when the Messiah has been born, heaven is spilling out onto earth in praise. And it reminded me, this is not the only moment that Scripture talks about heaven spilling out onto earth. As a matter of fact, the very next thing that John sees after the woman, the dragon, and the baby is heaven spilling out onto earth. Let's read that beginning in verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Just a side note, Gabriel appears in Luke chapter 1. There are three angels that are named in the context of Scripture. Gabriel is named as the angel that comes to Zechariah. 
Gabriel's the messaging angel, believed to be the one who comes to Mary, the one who comes to the shepherds. Michael is the angel of war. When you see war or attack in its spiritual in nature, it is Michael commanding the armies of heaven. There's another angel that's mentioned, the angel Lucifer, by historical tradition of the church, who is in this passage called the dragon. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, the dragon, and they lost their place in heaven. Look at this next verse. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. Go back to that verse. This is heaven coming to earth. perhaps in a different way than we've ever imagined it. And you can imagine John's confusion and hearing this and seeing this. And all of a sudden, he hears a voice. The very next verse says this. Look at this. Then he heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of God's Messiah, of His Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. When the Scriptures say hurled down, what it's saying has been defeated. John is hearing a voice clarifying what he's seeing. That now, in this moment, as the serpent is hurled down, now the authority of the Messiah has come. And what does he say? Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God. This is the main theme of the teaching of Jesus Christ. And while this talks about what happened in heaven, the very next verse talks about us. And they triumphed over him, triumphed over the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. This is a phenomenal picture of first century Christianity. In a world where a confession of faith was a death sentence. They did not shrink back from that. They knew that they could overcome. And they could overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. I just want to remind you of something that I've said throughout this series. We are all, every one of us, whether we like it or not, whether we want to be or not, we are all trapped in an unseen war with an unseen enemy. As a matter of fact, I heard recently that right after World War II, the Prime Minister of Norway was interviewed. He's a very devout spiritual man. And they asked him about the, the fervor of the battles throughout World War II. And he said, you know, if you could rip back the veil between what is the natural and the spiritual, 
the intensity of the spiritual battle that we are currently engaged in would make every other human battle that has ever been fought look like a child's play game. We are caught in an unseen battle with an unseen enemy. And the question still remains, why is heaven rejoicing in the moment that this baby is born? The reason they're rejoicing is the victor has entered the arena. For all of their created existence, angels have known Jesus who was and is and is to come, had seen his power, knew his character, and in this moment when he is incarnate, there is no doubt in heaven whether he will or will not win. Heaven is rejoicing if you're taking notes because hell is defeated. Heaven is rejoicing because hell is defeated. And this is so prevalent in the Christmas story, but we, we miss it. I mean, you go to Matthew chapter 2 when the Magi show up in Jerusalem. Who are they looking for? They're not looking for a baby. They're looking for a new king who will rule with power. Heaven's rejoicing because the victor has entered the arena. In this moment, I would go so far as to say heaven is declaring victory in faith at Christmas. There's a difference between what happens in faith and what happens in fruit. Some of y'all have been through this. God speaks to you and in faith, you know he's going to heal your marriage. He's going to heal your relationship with your kids. He's going to bless your, your business. You, you, you sense it in faith, but it's yet to come to fruition. There's a difference between what we experience in faith and what we experience in fruit. And victory in fruit happens at the cross when Jesus dies on our behalf and is raised to new life. Not here, though. This is looking forward to the cross. And this declaration of victory is in faith. Just think about that for yourself today. Where do you need to declare victory in faith in your life? Maybe you're struggling in your marriage. You've been fighting. It's been a lot of tension, but you know Somewhere deep inside, God has promised you that he's going to heal your marriage and things are going to be restored. And you need to declare victory in faith. Maybe there's a child that you have who's wandered away from their relationship with God and you know the word. Train them, raise them up in the right way and they won't depart from that when they get old. Declare victory in faith. Sometimes... You need to declare victory in faith before you see it in fruit. And some of us, 
need to get on our face before God and say, God, I'm going through this. I want you to heal this. I need you to rescue me here. And when God speaks to you, even though it's not in fruit yet, we can declare victory in faith because he who spoke it is able to accomplish it. I mean, this is moving towards the place where it's going to be accomplished. I mean, this is Jesus born to do what we could not do to live the perfect life. And I remind you, something I've said throughout the series, there is no cross without Christmas. It is the sacrifice of Jesus to set aside heaven, to be born as a human being. There's no cross without Christmas. The birth of Jesus sets the course towards the cross. And I've come to understand this about myself. And what is true about me is true about you. I need the cross. I can't earn forgiveness. I can't earn what only God can give. It was purchased for me at the cross. I'm invited to be an overcomer. I'm invited into a new kind of strength. I'm invited to things I could never earn for myself. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, to preach the message of the cross seems like sheer nonsense to those who are on their way to destruction. Some of y'all might remember a point in your life where it felt like, like this, is, this is just that makes sense. But now you know this. But to us who are being saved, that phrase, are being saved, present perfect, it didn't happen a long time ago. It is happening right now. Being saved is not a decision you made when you were 13, when you raised a hand and walked an aisle. It is a decision we make. We are being saved. It is the mighty power of God released within us. And I need that power you need that power because the enemy that John describes to us in Revelation chapter 12 is bigger than me. But he is not bigger than my God. And through my surrender to him and his victory on my behalf, I can be an overcomer. As a matter of fact, that's what John says. You remember that? We still overcome the same way. We still overcome by the blood of, the, of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, and our story shared. This is what John says. In verse 11, it says this, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. It's like John creates a little equation. The word of their testimony plus the blood of the lamb equals overcoming. There's some of that that only God can do. The blood of the lamb. That's the perfect sacrifice of God's son on our behalf. But there's some of it that is our job. The word of our testimony. See, God's done some stuff for some folks in here that you've never shared. 
And I want you to understand this. This idea of I have a private relationship with God is not a biblical idea. Like as followers of Christ, we're literally called to share our stories, to share our testimonies. Why? Because there are people in your life who are struggling with the very same thing. And your victory will give them courage to fight their battle. When God shows up for you, don't sit on it. Share it. And for some of us, maybe the next step today is to start sharing what God has done. In just a moment, we're going to share communion. Isn't that really just sharing, again, the story of the cross? We need to be willing to share our stories. But it's not just our story shared. It's the blood of the Lamb. And I want to remind you of this as we get ready to start communion. The finished work of Jesus. Isn't that what he said on the cross? It is finished. We don't add to it. We don't get to make it any better. He accomplished it alone. The finished work of Jesus invites us to receive his victory through our surrender. So let's prepare to take communion together. If you would grab the, as our staff likes to call it, the handy TSA approved <laughs> communion elements. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 22. Jesus is having the Passover meal with his friends. This is the night before he's betrayed. I want you to see the words that he shares with them as he begins what is now the Christian sacrament of communion. He took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Notice he broke it into pieces. And he gave it to the disciples. This is my body, which is given. What we know about the body of Jesus over the next few hours would be that in an attempt after him having been beaten by Sanhedrin guards, he would have been scourged at Pilate's order, whipped to the point that his back, many men would have died from what he went through. His back and the flesh ripped wide open. He's nailed to a cross where for hours he struggles to breathe as he's bleeding and dying. His body is completely destroyed and this gift, this is what Jesus says it was. It was a gift to us because it should have been our body. Romans chapter 6 says, The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Sin earns a wage. And that wage is death. And on the cross, Jesus physically 
absorbed the punishment for our sin. And he took the bread and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because there's no way to receive the bread without destroying it. You begin to chew and then your saliva takes over and then you swallow and your digestive system, by the, by the time it's over with, it's completely obliterated and gone. That's what our sin did to the body of Jesus. And it's not only what our sin did to the body of Jesus, but it's what our sin does to our lives. When you let sin live in an area what you're doing is earning a wage. And some of us are wondering, why does my marriage feel dead? Why do I feel dead emotionally? Because you've earned the wage. And Jesus created this moment for us to be reminded of the devastating effects of sin. This is not simple. It is not simply transgressing a rule. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because He gave up His body when it should have been ours. So when you take the bread, it should be a sobering moment. It should be a moment when we evaluate our lives and we evaluate the spaces that we've let sin live. And we're reminded of how devastating its effects can be. Let's take the bread together. Father God, thank you for sending your son that on the cross in his body he would absorb the punishment that should have been inflicted on us. May we be reminded in this moment of the severity of sin and the gift that we've received in your body broken. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. But that's not where it ended. The next verse says, And then, after supper, he took another cup. This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. That word sacrifice would pop for a Jew. Because they know we're made right with God through a blood sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, no, this cup, this represents a new covenant. That word covenant means promise. I'm making you a new promise. It's as if Jesus was saying, listen, you will never be able to do for yourself what I'm about to do for you. And the promise that you've had is that you'll be made right with God through the sacrifice of sheep, bulls, and goats. But now you will be fully and finally reconciled to God through my blood. This is a new promise. 
and it's secured with my blood. I mean, just in this moment, imagine the blood dripping down from his beard, from where his scalp had been pierced by the crown of thorns. The blood dripping down from his back, from where he had been beaten, out of his hands and off of his feet. Blood given for you as a promise to secure this simple fact that we are right with God, not because of how right we are, but because of how right he was for us. And it is his righteousness imputed to us that will make us right with God. That is this promise. Whenever I eat, I need to have a little cup of something to drink to wash it down. Because after I've chewed and swallowed, there's still remnants left. I like to think that Jesus was giving us the image of what his blood does for us. That as much as we try to dress ourselves up and to be perfect and get it right, we will never, ever cleanse ourselves from sin. It is his blood that washes us clean. The cup that follows the bread. The blood that washes away our sinfulness. Let's be reminded of that great gift as we take the cup. So Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son. And we ask you today to remind us in this moment of the power of God available to us in the blood of Jesus Christ. And may we, in this sacred space, inspect ourselves the way that the Scriptures demand we do when we receive these elements in this sacrament. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.